welcome to Personal Landscapes. I'm your host, Brian Murdoch. You can find links for today's episode and other conversations on books about place at ryanmurdoch.com. Welcome to another exciting book-filled conversation. It's been a few weeks since we last got together. Part of that's a scheduling issue in interviewing writers who write about plays. Quite often, those people are, are away on, on the road. And I will also vanish from time to time on, on trips of my own. I'm just back from a short trip to northern Greece where, among other things, I was able to hike to the peak of Mount Olympus. I'm sorry to report that the peak was completely godless, which is not what my childhood favorite cartoon, The Mighty Hercules, would expect me to believe. So I was, I was pretty disillusioned not to see Zeus there, and even more upset not to see Aphrodite. I was, I was kind of counting on making her acquaintance on this trip. But you can read about uh, that on my blog. I'll post some, some stories and, uh, and photos and maybe some videos of the trip over there. Uh, in the meantime, if you're pining for more conversations on, on travel and travel literature while I'm, while I'm away in these short breaks, I highly recommend Jeremy Bassetti's Travel Writing World podcast. If you like what I'm doing here, you'll enjoy very much his recent episodes about Patrick Lee Fermer and uh, Laurie Lee. So check those out uh, in the meantime. So today I'm speaking with Sarah Wheeler. Sarah's the author of 10 books, including Modern Stars, about her recent journeys to Russia. That was shortlisted for the Stanford Dillon Travel Book of the Year Award. Uh, she's also written uh, an outstanding book on Antarctica called Terra Incognita, and a really cool biography of the polar explorer, Apsley Cherry Garrard. So we spoke about those books, about her recent travels in Russia, living as a writer in residence on an Antarctic research base, and the reciprocal relationship between story and memory. Sarah Wheeler, welcome to Personal Landscapes. Thank you. Great to be here. So there are so many places uh, we could open this conversation. You've written so many, so many great books, but I'd like to start with your most recent book, Mud and Stars. So you wrote that uh, Russia was the first country you visited. You were 11 years old and it was the height of the Cold War. Uh, tell me about that journey. It was extraordinarily peculiar in every way. Um, I come from a working class family and we never went anywhere. But my mother, through some quirk of her imagination or history or goodness knows what, uh, thought she'd been a Romanov in a previous existence and was obsessed was obsessed with Russia. And this was the era, um, 1971, where the package tour, a phrase hitherto unknown to us, was sort of being born. And in the pages of the Daily Express, which was the only newspaper that came into our flat, my parents, unbelievably looking back, saw an advert for a um, package tour to Moscow and Leningrad, five days in each. And before I knew it, uh, the money had been found and we were off, off um, not at the M4, because it hadn't been built yet, um, from Bristol anyway. I think it started at, um, well, halfway up. And um, off we went. And um, it was an extraordinary experience, which I must say, I remember very well. So was this sort of a one-off trip for you? Like you, you mentioned that your family didn't take, take many of these uh, sorts of trips. Yes, absolutely. It was, it was completely unique. It was unique and um, stands in my childhood memories like a tropical island in the middle of the North Sea. 
It was it was the same for me too. Like we we came from a working class family, and we didn't uh, in Ontario, and we didn't go anywhere. Like I went on a fishing trip with my father that seemed a million miles away, but it was it was really two hours from our hometown. But you know, apart from Montreal and Toronto, that was that was about the furthest furthest ever got to university time. So what what sort of did did that plant any seeds in you as a traveler in terms of wanting to go to faraway places? Well, I think it must have done. I don't know what else did really. I think it's always very hard. Uh, finding where the fertile ground lay everything seems fertile looking back um but i do think that the, i do note that that the memories of that trip uh, are very vivid in my mind no doubt many of them embellished as memories always are um and so i don't wonder if it cast cast something to the wind which came back and uh took root so how, how did your memories of that first trip compare to like during the cold war compared to what you saw more recently I could, of course, I interpret it now, Ryan. It was a, as a police state. I mean, one couldn't do anything. And we were billeted in the, one of these enormous hotels in both places where foreigners had to stay, in tourists, ran everything. And I remember there was a babushka and at the end of every um, corridor of the hotel to check guests in and out. Of course, she was a spy of sorts, just making sure you didn't get up to anything. And I remember she patted my head uh, because I suppose seeing foreign children, and I must have been dressed very differently to Russian children, um, patting my head and smiling and being so friendly. At I think I had the impression that their lives were so bleak that any splash of colour and difference and smiliness, they embraced it because they had little else to embrace. I, it's hard for me to say how much that's coloured by what I now know. But I do remember the babushki, um, all of them patting me on the head and being smiley and everybody being extraordinarily friendly. And I did ask my mother not long ago, um, because I've become increasingly aware as I've approached old age myself at how memory distorts itself. Hmm. I asked her and on that point, she said, yes, indeed. She said everybody was so friendly she said I felt so sorry for them because their lives were so miserable they were just delighted to it wasn't conversations of course because we had no language in common but uh, smiles and handshakes and slaps on the back that's something I'd like to come back to actually in a bit further in um, some general questions about travel writing but in in the way that uh, memories shapes stories and stories shape memories but first, I, I wanted to ask um, why you decided to structure the book around the great writers of Russia's golden age. Is it because the country's literature sort of reveals something timeless about about the culture? Reading is as important to me as travel is. Um, and the writers of the Russian golden age, which I define as sort of Pushkin's The Death of Tolstoy. I mean, academics, will, we can say about the, has, there's a silver age and this and that, but that's how I define it. They straddle the world and always will. And I, what writer wouldn't want the chance to write about them? And so it was more that I wanted to write about them and I wanted to travel in Russia. So I thought I'd meld the two and have them as my guides. And that's how it turned out to be. And they were guides. Yeah, I thought that worked really well. I mean, I'm not I'm not terribly well read, read in, in Russian literature, a little bit of Dostoevsky and... Um... Lermontov, and I think that's about it. So this it 
I came away from the book with a huge reading list as well. Good. Well, you better start making your better start making your way through it. But well, where, when did you first encounter these writers? Some of it's not very daunting, though. I mean, mm. Chekhov short stories. You could do a Chekhov short story in an hour, you know, mm. less. So what I mean is, there's not all uh, Tolstoy's doorstops. So you asked me when I first encountered. I don't know. I didn't study Russian. Um, just I think if one does have a passionate interest in reading, they come up, don't they? I mean, you can't avoid them. You can't avoid them, like rivers and oceans and crossing water of all kinds. You can't avoid them. So they, I can't answer your question with any degree of accuracy because they've always been there in my, in my, in my imagination, in my mind. Yeah. So you said that you wanted to find out what had changed between then and now, like from the golden age to sort of the Putin era. And your conclusion was basically very little. Like you, in the book, you had written that for ordinary people, uh, it was a sick country then, and it's a sick country now. And the disparity between the few and the many was as ridiculous in the writer's day as it is now. Well, I'm afraid that that is true. And it's a, an appalling truth. Uh, I did seek to uh, find the differences, and there weren't any. I mean, look, that's a well, it's not superficial in a way. It's superficial to say, of course, there's millions of differences. And they've got the internet and all the rest of it. But at a profound level, nothing has changed for that reason. They are betrayed on a daily basis by an inept and corrupt leadership at every level and the top down. So, of course, the lowest guy and the rung, the low, guy on the lowest rung of the local administration uh, is corrupt because he sees all the people on the rungs above him are. So he sort of has to be. So in every area of one's daily life, whether it's navigating one's children's education, healthcare, housing, it is corruption that one faces and horrors of every kind to oppress the people who make up the vast majority of the country. That hasn't changed a bit. It's interesting that this is a cultural continuity from Tsarist times through the communist era all the way to the sort of kleptocracy you see under Putin. Like, what what is it about Russia that? I think it's not so much that it's about Russia. I think, well, let me say first of all, I think it's more that once a system gets embedded, it's hard root and branch to get it out. One might look at other revolutions and say, well, they did, um, but it is hard, and I think that. There was a certain systems that are in place that that just weren't were never replaced except by a new new names of the apparatchik system that manipulated them. I think that that so that's the first thing. Nothing specific about Russia. Hard to uh, change things once they're embedded. And the second thing about Russia is the size. I would say. I mean, you know, you've got this division of the Urals in particular. European Russia and Asiatic Russia, which I think is what how the Urals generally deem to be our frontier, um, and the sort of massive sprawl of Siberia. And even when you've got through that, you've got the Russian Far East. One can say, I'm sure, that size does make a country hard to govern, therefore hard to institute the rule of rule, the effective rule of law, which they never have instituted. Um, so that would be my second point on that question, yeah. That's a good point about um, continuities in the sense that the Eastern Europe had a different experience, like they had communism imposed on them, but there were 
the previous generation, like older people still remembered what it was like before that, or you have a grandfather, you know, who, who, who lived a pre-war life, pre-second world war. So they could, they could tell the grandchildren about uh, what they had seen under this other system. But when you have something that's existed for that long throughout all these different uh, dictatorships and kleptocracies and it's uh, yeah. Where, where do you even get the impetus to change? I think you're right, and your point the, the geographical size also reinforces your point that that these huge structures are less monolithically vast, and the smaller the smaller uh, countries, European countries that were part of the communist bloc, and so maybe um, they didn't get as sclerotic and were easier to change in some way. Yeah, another thing I found interesting about the this was um you wrote that people people you stayed with or met on trains had no illusions about the kleptocracy under which they lived and yet almost everyone felt that the west was out to get them so so sort of some of that putin era propaganda was sinking in this sort of us versus them in the west and like he he was our bastard kind of thing yes i don't think that's any contradiction from what we were discussing before um quite the reverse i mean everybody's aware of a corruption uh and don't really blame people they have to deal with personally who are all on the lower rungs for taking their slice because they know it's it's part of things um and they do know they have a high level of awareness uh yes he's a monster but he's our monster you see i think it's terribly easy to control the narrative if you control all the media all the media and so when i was there night after night sitting with my host watching telly they would be like say when crimea kicked off there would just be this stream of information saying that the West blames Russia for all the problems in Crimea, but of course it's not Russia's fault, but the West liked to blame Russia for everything, and there would follow an enormous amount of evidence uh, showing that the West did blame Russia for every every evil in the world and that they had fake data to blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it, it acquires legs of its own. So people do think that the West is out to get Russia, and at least Putin's batting for them. So were you traveling in Russia at the time of the Crimean conflict? I, yeah, I was. Yeah, I remember them all. Uh, it was either the telly or they all had iPads or some sort of devices. And I did a lot of homestays. That's what we're talking about, Ryan, mm-hmm. which is one of the things that's very easy to organize in Russia, really easy. And uh, to me, absolutely gripping because you do stay with, quotes ordinary people and share their lives, you know, and um, usually – one communal room, sort of kitchen area where they you're invited to sit around with them drinking tea, watching telly, or they're hunched over their um, iPad, uh, iPad pads. And uh, I find that um, an extremely conge- congenial way to learn about their lives in granular detail, which is what a writer has to do. So what were their uh, relationships with these great writers who were guiding your trip? Um, I won't say they were readers, but they'd had a lot forced down their throat at school. So they'd read bits, and also they knew that Pushkin in particular was part of the great nationalist narrative, and they could start parroting off the bronze horseman, you know, and the myth, the foundation of Petersburg. Um, and they were, had enormous pride in uh, those writers. And as in many parts of the world, actually, writers do have a, a sort of vatic role in Russia, which is nice to see. I mean, I remember it acutely from South America, though, and anything that was going on in the country, the writer, a writer would be wheeled out, one, preferably one of the, the top the top ones, so wheeled out to spout on television and give his opinion. 
the right is held in many countries in the world in a tremendous respect. And the writers of the past uh, in Russia, which is all they've got because the government would make sure that the writers of the present, who generally aren't very keen on authority, are kept out of the picture. So the writers of the past, notably Pushkin, very much part of the national myth. And um, people are proud. Do you think that's changed in the West, the, seeing the writer as this cultural figure who can sort of interpret and explain things to the rest of us, like with the internet age yes. and the you know, instant celebrity? Yes, I think it's. I think it stopped along before the internet age. Uh, it would be hard to pinpoint um, <clears throat> moments at which it stopped. I think the atomization of society of postmodernism. I, I imagine, like American American celebrity culture as well, and this whole, whole the way they've exported this television and talk show culture to the world. Yeah, that's now laid. That's now laid over it. Um, yes, I do think it started before then, Ryan. But yes, this culture, the cult of the celebrity, has pushed writers even uh, further down, and as has um, the role of literature in education. I don't want to be like a you know sounding like Freddie Truman. I was going to say, but nobody knows who he is anymore. He was a great, great English figure cricketer who used to come on the radio the wireless all the time and moan about how everything was terrible now and we used to be the golden age of the past um but i do think that reading was accorded more um uh respect and since television began to dominate our lives it's only been demoted still further i don't want to get too sidetracked but that's kind of a pet issue for me too it's how do you feel about this this wholesale gutting of the curriculum? I mean, you studied classics at school, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah, it, well, it, regrettable, <clears throat> regrettable. And um, I worry about uh, students, even students who've chosen to study literature, let alone the earlier ones, uh, the ones who um, have to study it as part of. I'm talking about in the English system, sort of 14, as you start selecting books are sort of bourgeois and you have to study texts or so one learns and Chaucer is right out of the window because he depicts things that are unacceptable and there's a lot of deleterious things going on that said um, I do think it's important for young girls to have decent role models so it's a question of balance but um, there are issues though I must say Ryan I notice and this is on my mind because I'm thinking about writing a radio script about it, um, that people of my children's age, so in their 20s, millennials, um, who grew up with the electronic book, with electronic everything available electronically, I noticed that they do read books. I mean, book books. They do. People who, not like me, who, but people who grew up with no, who didn't have to ever look at a book book. For leisure purposes, they do. And that's encouraging. I mean, there's a thousand reasons to read an actual book rather than an electronic one. Um, and uh, they can see that, even though they never had to do it like I did. Uh, you know, I think a bigger issue is the education system in, in the UK in general. And, you know, it's I had the benefit of the best state education that a girl ever had or ever will have. And I want to be grateful for that, um, whilst I wish it were available widely now and I don't think it's available to anybody now in quite the form it was to me hmm. so I would like to see the best people in our society going into education um, both organizationally and being teachers 
But we know that's not going to happen because they don't earn enough, but they ought to earn more. Well, in the preface to um, the reissue of your first book, Evia, you said, uh, I wish I had carried on researching the early Bronze Age. What, What were you studying at that time? Uh, Well, I studied classics and modern Greek at university. Um, And as part of classics always, there's a component of um, ancient history. It was was and is called ancient history. Yeah. So it was all about Mycenae and how thick the walls were and uh, uh, mostly the Golden Age, but going back before and um, then at university, Homer was a a compulsory part of the course. Um, And so there was a lot about... um, the little one knew about a thousand years before the golden age when uh, the Troy took place, Troy was the war took place um, and all kinds of things to do with the classical world. I went on a couple of archeological digs in Greece um, and, you know, I mean, it's just unbelievably gripping. And um, to a certain extent, I think that comment, if I remember it correctly, was slightly saying that I wish I'd specialized like everybody else rather than become a generalist, I felt very strongly that I was born a generalist and I felt that someone's got to be one. It's very unfashionable. I mean, even most travel writers specialise in an area, don't they? Well, they do. You know that um, as well as I do. And I don't specialise in anything. And it's a bit late It's a bit late now. No, I think that's a good thing. I, I think there's a, there is a place for, for the generalist to sort of draw um, commonalities between to be between broad areas and to spot these patterns. So then what, de- what determines your interest then in, in tackling a particular topic? Like Greece was obviously driven by your studies, but wh- um, why go from there to Chile, for example? The, the thing about my first book about this Greek island was I, I had loads of stuff in my head I wanted to say about Greece uh, because I'd lived there for a long, well, more than a year I lived there um, with a job. And I studied ancient and modern. I was really interested in orthodoxy. I just had tons of stuff to say. And to a certain extent, the book was a labour of love, and there's too much labour and too much love, and not enough art. And um, I, my agent said to me, you've got to go somewhere now you don't know anything about. And I felt intrinsically that that was right. And I knew one thing about Chile, which is that I'd looked at it longingly on the map, wondering how a country could possibly exist, which was this extraordinary shape, 28 times longer uh, than it is wide and how could that woman at the top have anything whatsoever to do with the woman at the bottom and so it was a motif a sort of frivolous reason um, that led me to go to the top and make my way down to the bottom I think that's quite a good reason to go actually the, the geography is fascinating the those desert regions in the north well it did it did turn out to be it did turn out to be a good one and partly because it's not like one of these countries invented by bureaucrats it's perfect it's the most logical country in the world geographically it's an island it's another island my first book was about an island it was another island you've got the driest desert in the world at the top pacific all the way down um west the andes all the way down the east and at the bottom it collapses into an ice cap so it is an island so in fact she has a lot to do with the one at the bottom you know and they look to europe much more than they look over the Andes to their enemy, the Argentine, Argentinians. Um, so actually it did turn out to be a good motif, I think more by luck than judgment in that case. But don't, don't you find that's often the case where you, you plan a trip to a place just because it happens to be there, it's a bit odd and don't know much about it, and it turns out to be um, sort of a, a highlight in your travel memories? Like I found that with the Baltic states. 
Did you? Yeah, well, I think serendipity, yes. But I think what probably more often happens is you go somewhere and you can't get there at the last minute so you have to go somewhere else and it's that place that turns out to be yielding and that you went to completely by by chance or you have a boring three weeks and on the last day someone suggests something you think oh I might as well go and then you have this you know go somewhere and it just unlocks everything and it is wonderful so serendipity certainly plays a role thank goodness it does right and otherwise we could lay it all out before we went well, yeah, well, it's interesting too to see how one one journey led to the next three. Like that, obviously, led to Antarctica. Uh, did did the Antarctic book lead to Cherry Garrard, or was yeah. it the other way around? No, no, absolutely that way around. So, yeah, I spent seven months in the Antarctic, and again, I didn't really know anything about it when I went there, um, and I didn't know anything about Antarctic history, which, of course, unlike history everywhere else, starts at about nineteen, well, let's say eighteen eighty. Um, no history before that, so you have it's possible to sort of get a snapshot and then there's the heroic age which is you know largely generally speaking um, Nansen Amundsen um well Nansen being in the north this is the polar Nansen Amundsen Mm. uh Scott Shackleton and Mawson and you know those are some of the greatest stories ever told and they bear constant retelling so I made my way through polar literature whilst I was in the Antarctic and then when I was writing Terra Incognita when I came back and of the many hundreds of books I read, there was one that just stood out like a beacon, which was Terry Garrard's The Worst Journey in the World, which, as you know, was published in 1922. And I noticed that he did not have his place uh, on the shelf of biographies. And that wasn't right. So that led to a biography of him. That book, I think it's my my favorite book of yours, partly because it's it's so different than, I guess, what I think you referred to it as the frozen beard sagas of of uh most most antarctic writing i mean you get you you give a glimpse into a world yeah. that that few people would have a chance to see the life on these research stations and the people who who inhabit them the sort of work they do and, and what it's like to exist in in a place like that now so cut off from the world that, that was really fascinating oh well I'm, gl- I'm glad you say that i think it's interesting too how people live in extreme environments so your home your home base was uh, the american uh, mcmurdo uh, facility right but you visited bases in several other countries or several other countries' bases? I uh, was a guest of t- three Antarctic government no, government programs, the American one, the British one, and the Italian one. And so, and then I was dependent on the goodwill of scientists, the principal investigators at field camps, to invite me along. So before I went at the um, orientation conferences, I was desperately trying to... Uh, you know, show principal investigators it'd be a good thing for them to have me along because, you know, CP slow two cultures, art and science working together, blah, blah. And anyway, you know, it's always good to have somebody in a camp to uh, do donkey work. And I did masses of donkey work and there's always lots of it to do. So the answer to your question is that I uh, transited through various bases, McMurdo, um, Rothera, um uh, and the Italian um, base, and uh, visited many others. But most of the time, most of those seven months, I was in the field and science camps. Well, most of five months. And then for two months, at the end of that, I had my own camp, which I shared with the American government's painter in residence. I was their writer in residence. We had our own camp in the cusp between 
total darkness and total light when um, the scientists hadn't arrived yet. If there is such a thing as paradise on Earth, that was it. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. How do the bases compare in terms of culture? Uh, dramatically. It wasn't really that they imported the culture from home, as you'd think. It was more that they ha- had the culture that their program had historically brought with it. So the British Antarctic Survey was the oldest one. So it still had it had a lot of stuff which had just continued through, started off military, continued through, uh, didn't have women there, and um, it was very fossilised culturally. Uh, which was just terrible for me. Whereas the American program was much bigger, started much more recently, and therefore had tons of women, and not doing the cooking either, doing all the jobs. So did the Russians, as you you know. I mean, even back then, if you go onto the streets of Russia, you see women driving bulldozers and so on, and so you did in the Antarctic as well. And uh, the Italians too, sort of benign and European, continental European, um, Chileans and Argentinians were near one another and uh, the whole thing was just about um, beating the other one, being better, because new countries, you know, borders, the whole big thing. So it's just a question of this is my flag and I've put it in the ice. So they did vary hugely. And I met hundreds and hundreds of people who were extremely kind and friendly to me. Did, did you find the um, the character of people drawn to the the southern polar regions differed from those in the north like I've, i haven't been to the far north but i've been you know to the northwest territories in canada and and i found that the people there were often either uh, they ended up there for work and they just fell in love with the place and kept coming back or they were kind of running away from something down south and they just didn't want to talk about it really well most people i met in the arctic were indigenous peoples but there were settlers of various kinds including in, in canada um and I think both of those things are true of um, the Arctic, but they could be true of anywhere, really. You know, just getting away from that place called home, running away in a negative way or, or in a positive way. Or in the case of the polar regions, getting to that uncluttered land. And there's no doubt that wilderness fosters a kind of serenity that civilization eschews. Of course, in the Antarctic, nobody lives there. There's no indigenous population. So we're talking about scientists. Well, they are there for the science. Uh, so we're talking about support staff. The same applied, really. Some of them were just getting away um, and from um, the ties of home. Uh, and others uh, wanted to experience the wilderness, even if they were working as an electrician on a on a base somewhere. The field assistants were out with the scientists, uh, stopping the scientists from falling into glaciers. And they were people who were really in their element, you know, in that kind of environment. Mountaineers, really. Does the does the um, writer in residence program still exist? Well, needless to say, it's been suspended, not because of COVID, but because um, of everything going to hell in a handcart with a budget. Um, the National Science Foundation runs America in Antarctica, um, and um, so NSF just did suspend the uh, Writers and Artists program. Um, and there's a great hope that it will start up again one day. But you know, in all circles, in all aspects of what the world everywhere, when something's suspended, there's a great chance it won't come back. There were loads of us went um, over the over the decades, and the British then started one as well, sort of after me. Um, so did the other ones, did the, any of the other writers uh, end up with books about the their experience there? 
Yeah, they did. There's photographers, not not travel books like mine, um, Mm. but different things. So poets, uh, photographers, um, people wrote children's books. Somebody wrote a book about women on the ice. Uh, They're artists, they're composers. It's really exciting seeing how the ice influenced and inspired different people. There was a choreographer. Oh, it's so exciting. Loads of photographers, loads of painters of every kind, as you could imagine. But I was the only person who wrote a travel book. I think um, I didn't quite know why that. Well, I don't think anybody would want to try to tackle it afterwards. Like, I don't really don't see how you could top it. Uh- <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not just saying that either. I mean, you, you've really captured something that's that would be difficult to surpass unless, you know, times changed so much that it was a different experience. But I, I was in um, in the north that I encountered uh, Cherry, your your biography. I was in this town in the Northwest Territories called Norman Wells on the Mackenzie River, and I'd I'd uh, gone there for a, a magazine trip to to walk this uh, former pipeline route from the wartime, and had uh, become injured and had some you know infection and stuff in my legs. I was sort of waiting for a flight out, and uh, uh, one of the wildlife guys there who I'd go drinking beer with, he he loaned me that book because I guess we were talking about the worst journey in the world. That's almost a perfect story, which you must write down. The following the pipeline, I like that. The structure, following the pipeline, introduction of evil, hydrocarbons, uh, getting ill, so being grounded, uh, the nice guy you drank with. It's a perfect story. Yeah, well, it did end up in an Outpost magazine that they sent me there, uh, the Canadian travel magazine, but it was, you know, before before much of the environmental concerns. So it was more about the wartime story and the and the pipeline. But uh, it's it's it was a really great service you did as well, writing this biography, because what a fantastic book, and the worst journey in the world. Indeed. And do you know what, Ryan? Next year is the centenary. Wow, that's hard to believe. Yeah. Just the, the ending. Is there any it's, – it's one of the most um, – heartbreaking endings of any any book but at the same time hopeful i think like where you read about this guy's struggles to to uh, do his winter journey and and come up with this egg and you know working themselves into their their frozen sleeping bags each day you know like gradually thawing their way into it just the misery and then to get back to to london and show up with this egg and they just throw it over there like nobody seemed to care very much yeah, and he does try to achieve redemption at the end of the book. You will march if you march your winter journeys. You will have your rewards. So long as all you want is a penguin's egg, he does try to achieve redemption. I think it was partly the writer in him knew that if you can, uh, it's great to uh, to have redemption at the end. There were there was optimism there, and he suffered, you know, a lot from poor mental health and wanted very much to believe and knew that there were ways out, even if they weren't permanent ones. Hmm. Uh, that was such an unforgettable ending. Uh, yeah, it's a, re- it's a redemptive ending. It's, it's really, it was really interesting to, f- to find out what happened to him afterwards. I was glad to read, uh, read a story as sad as it yeah. was in parts. I wish the book was better known, The Worst Journey in the World. I can't believe it isn't. You don't think it is? Well, I don't know. I'd be interested to hear your views. I mean, anybody who's read it, just says, oh, my God, that's just the best book ever written, da, 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 everybody who's read it. But there's a large category, a huge category, Ryan, who've never read it, never heard of it. Yeah, that's that's really sad. I, I can't remember where I found out. But I think Paul Theroux, I read something that he had written about it. Oh, he goes on about it all the time, and he often picks, a, he often picks it as his um, 
you know, you get asked all the time, what's your favourite travel book? And he often picks that as his. And he wrote an introduction to an early uh, edition, a Picador edition. Um, that's maybe what I have. That's yeah. it, yeah. So you, you would have, uh, you would have. that's very possible. So spreading the word, yeah. So I, I can see how that, um, that journey led to this biography and then you, you, it eventually took you to the Arctic. But uh, Dennis Finch Hatton, that's a bit of a, a, a sidestep. What, what brought that one about? After so after Cherry um, and Terra Incognita, I could see that I was I was losing my identity as a generalist, and that I could have gone on writing books about little wooden ships in the pincers of a flow forever. And I very much did not want to do that. I wanted to write about other things beside the polar regions, so I realised I had to get away right away from it, completely away from the polar regions. So, well, that was the first thing. Second thing was I'd greatly enjoyed writing a biography. Um, I'd, you know, but there's a lot of anxiety beforehand about, well, what's it going to be like writing a biography after writing travel books? So it turned out to be exactly the same, really, just exploring someone's life um, in the way that you explored a foreign land. I love research. Every day is a success when you research, isn't it? The same way every day is a failure when you write. And um love being in the archives. What I really liked was... Uh, when I did the the times, the periods when I didn't know what he was doing, that period for which biographers long to write and so the years passed. You haven't just got any idea what they're doing. There's no letters. Um, and then what you have to do is conjure the background they're walking against. And I just love doing that. I mean, for example, by reading local newspapers. And they're not online. So people say everything's online, but it bloody isn't. Uh, so you sit in newspaper archives turning sort of friable pages looking at the small ads, trying to get that granular texture of everyday life. Anyway, so I wanted to do another biography. I wanted to go somewhere I didn't know anything about. I'm not a historian, so I felt in terms of conjuring the period, I couldn't really go any further back than Cherry. He was born in 1886. You know, I could just about get away with it, the death of agriculture in Britain and then from the 1880s, collapse of land onwards and that. And the First War and then onwards. Um... And I couldn't go back beyond that. I mean, I just, the idea of writing about a figure, you know, from the Tudor period, for example, I mean, I just couldn't bring it off. I just couldn't do it. So, uh, and by complete chance, as it seems, uh, I came across Dennis Finch Hatton. And he was the man played by Robert Redford in Out of Africa. Um, that's how most people know him, Robert Redford. But in fact, he was bald as a billiard ball and didn't have an American, and didn't have an American <laughs> accent. And uh, there's almost nothing known about him, hardly anything. It's like, you know, a handful of letters. And so this conjuring the background was, you know, it was just, that was all I had for long periods. And I absolutely loved it. And he died young, which is also a great asset in a biographical subject. He died in a plane crash, didn't he? He did. He pranked his plane, yeah, into the Nagong Hills. He, oh. um, he's buried there. He, um, uh, he served in the First War. and. Um, uh, after serving on the East African Front, which, by the way, is a completely gripping story, the only theatre which the German Empire and the British Empire had a bo- shared a border, Tanganyika and British East Africa, or what is now Tanzania and Kenya. So he fought there, and um, then he was sent to Mesopotamia, um, 1915, second half of 1915, probably. The life expectancy of an Allied pilot on the Western Front was 11 days. So they were just sucking in recruits. So he learned to fly then in the war, as many did, in Cairo, in fact. 
Uh, and so after the First World War, he returned to British East Africa and, uh, you know, he could fly. And uh, he had got the bug as people seemed to. So he bought a gypsy moth, a custard yellow gypsy moth, and um, was working out uh, ways of using it for his work, which was like, he was a white hunter, so he's taking out um, safari clients. And of course, when you take out safari clients, then as now, you've got to lead them to the bloody game, you know. You have to. Can't wander around for six weeks. That's how long we lasted then, and not show them anything. So he had the idea of scouting from the air. As it was, they sent out a staff, uh, and of course, the indigenous peoples, they were Kikuyu mainly, um, were brilliant at sc- scouting game. But still, he, he thought that, well, scouting from the air, which was actually a good idea. So um, it was a combination of work and pleasure. And um, yes, in the end, he did indeed prank his plane. He shows up in, in West with the Night, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Um, Beryl Markham was his lover, and uh, she, he left Karen Blixen for uh, her, uh, something that doesn't come out, um, understandably, in um, out of Africa. And he had an affair with Beryl, as did many people, including Prince Henry when he came out on the Royal Safari. She was an incredibly interesting character, a piece of work. And to my mind, her memoir, West with the Night, is every bit as good as Out of Africa and really deserves the kind of immortality that Out of Africa uh, has achieved. And uh, in a way, she was rather more agreeable, um, I think, than uh, than Karen Blixen, certainly to my taste. I know he's heretical to say that. I'm not a massive fan of Karen Blixen's work, but I know I notice that every time I say that in a piece, um, I get general opprobrium in my direction. Maybe we could I could ask you a few questions about what makes great writing about place in that in that sense. I, I was at a talk a few years ago that you did with Michael Palin at the British Museum, uh, part of the the Patty Lee Fermer exhibition. Mr. Palin said uh, when I first started reading travel writing. There was something vaguely shameful about it. Uh, it could usually be found down on a small shelf between erotica and gardening. But he felt that travel writing is the most ancient form of writing, so to, to go somewhere into the unknown and come back and tell others what you've seen. Uh, would you agree with that? Oh, yes, 100%. It is the most ancient. Uh, there are ancient travel writers. I mean, that's what Herodotus was, you know, in a way. He's a historiographer, but he went off to Egypt as, as, and uh, came back telling people that what people had, telling the readers back at home what what the folk he'd met had for supper, you know. So, yeah, Michael was right. It is part of the human spirit to go off to another place and come back and tell people about it. And I'm glad that since those days, as Michael spoke about, that he started out when it was relegated to between erotica and gardening, um, that since then it's come out of that closet, banging the door behind it, and it's now widely accepted. And now it's gone even further, you know, it's become more hybridised and blended with all kinds of things, um, you know, memoir and all kinds of other kinds of nonfiction. Um, and I hope that goes on forever, as I'm sure it will. I mean... All kinds of literature has to reinvent itself. Well, that, that's something you said in that talk as well, that as long as you've got your structure, you can smuggle in whatever else you want to do. So it's, Yes, it's- smuggle is a key, word, a key verb in what I do, as is ballast, because you've got the stories as ballast or the description of the, you know, the sea eagle with the ruffled feathers hunched on a tree as night falls on a Scottish island, and then the rattle of the train and the squeal of the brake as the train pulls into summer and endless endless stuff like that and you can that's the ballast 
and it can smuggle in themes which are incorporeal about um, things that are much harder, like who am I and who are you and who is God and uh, has modernism fizzled out and, you know, all types of things that are really interesting. You can smuggle in and writers cleverer than I don't need the ballast. Well, I found though that also that the um, the shape of the journey makes it easier to to work your way into something like that. Like in always, when you're trying to start out as a writer, people say, "Oh, write about what you know, write about your hometown." And like I came from a town of four thousand people, and I couldn't see anything interesting except getting away from it. But going on my first trip gave me a sort of a structure that I okay, I've got a subject now. I can in the end, I produced something that had not really very little to do with that place and more about the nature of the journey, but. Uh, having that that framework made it easier now years later you know 30 40 years later i can i can look back at that small town and see a lot of interesting things in it but. yes now we've got the power the past is micro martin amos said when you reach 60 you've suddenly got this huge empire that didn't exist before which is the past hmm. um and see things differently in the light of all that knowledge you've acquired ryan in your traveling years you could look back on that well, this, that was another great quote from that uh, that talk I had written down in my notebook. He said, "The past is important for any kind of writer because the present's not around long enough." Couldn't that could not not be true, can it? I mean, the, yeah, the present isn't around for long enough. It is slightly a function of age, I think. I, I do find myself increasingly deploying it, and I'm just really pleased it's there, you know, because you do one does see things differently with the benefit of uh, knowledge, the knowledge that has accrued with the battering that the years give. I, I wonder if there's something specific about the sort of person that's attracted to that as well. Like I remember reading a book by um, by a doctor many years ago, uh, something on reflections on life's final chapter. And he had said, he had mentioned studies that point to an indication that all the professionals or of all the professions, medicine is the one most likely to attract people with high personal anxieties about dying. And I wonder if if writing attracts a disproportionate number of people with high personal anxieties about forgetting. Well, <clears throat> that's an extremely good question you ask. And you should do one of those internet surveys of writers, you know, when you Twitter surveys rather, uh, to see if we all agree with it. Uh, I think that the creative personality, the artistic personality, you would detect a higher level of anxiety uh, across the board, though, not just writing. I mean, musicians, artists um, of all kinds. I think that there's something about uh, using the imagination um, that it does marry and, that, and a lack of certainty that does, that does go hand in hand with um, proliferation of anxiety. Yeah, I do think so. Yeah, and I think that, that and an appreciation for stories and a desire to see them not fade away you know that the, the past is important, and that there are threads in there uh, of your own personal narrative that that should be preserved, or it's it's rather sad if they're not, or yes, or preserving the story of somebody like Cherry Garrard, you know. Yes, it had to be written down. Yeah, a lot of things. Yeah, you'd see so much of the past subsiding um, into the silt, never to be revived. But at the same time, when when telling the story about a journey, like it's it's not enough to just nobody wants to read a dead day-to-day diary of, you know, I walked 10 miles between Stubbsville and, and Egan Town, chewed a stick of gum and farted twice. Like nobody cares about the such things. It's got to be about something. Yeah. That's what I always say to students is that if they were, or anybody who says to me, travel writers, it's got to be about something. It's got to be a pattern in the carpet. That's an analogy I like. 
So, so where do you draw the line then between fictionalizing something, the, the fictional and the strictly literal when you're shaping that story? I mean, the story itself is, is going to exist as it is. I mean, if you're going off on a quest, for example, then a quest exists. You're going off looking for something. If you're following in someone's footsteps, the story, that's the story. You're following in someone's footsteps. I think that where the fictionalizing comes in mostly is in selection of material. I mean, you could write 20 books about any any anything of any any subject you come up with for a travel book right 20 books about it so what makes it distinctive is this your selection of material which goes on a process that goes on in you the writer's head uh, and that was, is, would be what shapes the story and so that's what makes it a work of the imagination and not a report of the kind you you say if i walked 10 miles and the temperature was this and i ate this and it looked like this. What makes it different from a report is the selection of material and the imagination that brings to bear in order to shape themes. So, so do you travel in order to write, or do you write about your travels in order to understand what they mean? The former. I travel in order to write. How important is it to have a mentor when you're when you're working through this process of learning to write? To have a mentor, did mm, you say? Some, some yeah, or the the sort of feedback. Um, Often writing feels like something that you're done is done in the wilderness in in the midst of a dark room and until you're lucky enough to encounter you know a serious editor. Yeah, yeah. Well, very, very. Yeah, very. I mean, I don't think I had nearly enough of it, and certainly in my first two books, I had none really. And then I started being a bit more uh, proactive in finding readers, and it became massively important to me as it still is. Very hard to find. It seems like yeah, in the early t- in this sort of when you're first starting out, you kind of, or at least for me, I gravitated towards uh, a couple writers whose work I really liked, and then just devoured everything and tried to figure out how they did it. But it's it's quite a difficult, slow process that way. Yeah, but it is a way. You have to read all the time. Um, if you're a writer, you have to read all the time. There is no other way. When I tell people that's who want to become writers, they always look. They sort of faces collapse, um, but. There is no other way, in my opinion. You have to read all the time. It's interesting that there seems to be a couple different people attracted to that sort of thing. Like there's the people that that love books and do read all the time and you naturally sort of gravitate to to writing. And then there's the people that kind of want to see themselves as a writer. Like martial arts was much like that. The people that like the idea of doing something, but they don't actually like the doing of it. Yeah. Oh, really? What an extremely interesting analogy. I don't know anything about martial arts, but that is very interesting. You mean to say that anybody who's serious about it needs to practice all the time and train all the time? Yeah, I, I, I did that for about 20 years or so when I was a you know, teenager onwards and into university. And the living and breathing of it, the picking yourself up off the ground all the time, the getting, getting constantly thrown and pummeled much more than you do the opposite. An awful lot of people like to say that they did that stuff, but they didn't actually enjoy the training, the the work of it. And I think, you know, writing and reading must be similar. Well, that's a really good analogy. Yeah, writing's hell. Yeah, it's, it's not the most fun, it's not the most fun occupation, is it? When, when, when something works. <laughs> it's hell. The, the, for the, those brief magical moments, akin to those times on the mats where, you know, everything is, is flowing perfectly and you just can't do anything wrong. And it's for that brief window, you know, that makes it worthwhile. Yeah, I suppose so. So you've said you admire the work of Norman Lewis above all travel writers of the 20th century. Why? Yes, I do. Yeah, I'd say. Uh, I think he's um, got that perfect uh, blend of the minute detail 
and the wide angle lens, or to keep the analogy going, the wide angle lens and the close up shot, which is the key really to all good writing. And I think he has it in a book like Naples 44. You can read the minutiae of what the birds are eating. They're starved, birds are starving like everybody else, like all the people. And then some, you know, it'll lend you into some much, much bigger picture, but even beyond Italy. Um, and similarly, when he's talking about the tribes people of Orissa and talking about the different castes and the poor people on their coast going up the mountain to apprehend and cheat, really, the even poorer people from another tribe coming down, um, it's that switch between the minute detail and the, the bigger picture. I think that he's a master and the subtlety of his language and his observational detail and uh, his humour and uh, everything about him really as a stylist and so much more than a stylist. Do you know him, didn't you? I met him once. I went, I went that, um, when he was 93. This would have been about 2011, I think, if memory serves. Um, he was 93. And a magazine asked me if I would do a retrospective of him, go and interview oh, wow. him. And... Uh, he lived in Essex at the time and I thought I've got to do this. Um, I was trying to get a book finished, but I thought I've got to do it because, you know, he's 93. It'd be my last chance. It was a pilgrimage for me. And uh, so I went there to do this and I met him and um, spent the day with him and his wife. And I have a photograph of me with him and I'm so glad I did it. I've seen that photo. Yeah. That's why I asked. That's really amazing. So what other writers would you place in your, in your personal pantheon, so to speak? Uh, well, the only other writer I've ever been so vulgar as to say, can I have my photograph taken with you, is Carlos Fuentes. <laughs> mm. um, I, I saw him in the green room at Hay. And again, I knew he doesn't come to England. He didn't come to England very often. And I thought, you know, I'm going to be vulgar. I'm going to say, so I did. So, yeah. Um, but I've got plenty in my pantheon of people who write about travel in some way. Let's think about Martha Gellhorn, one of my great heroes, um, Freya Stark, mm-hmm. uh, Gertrude Bell, mm. uh, Mary Kingsley. Yeah. Um, yeah, I could go on. That's enough to be going on with, isn't it? I admire all of them very much. Mm, that's a wonderful collection of writers, yeah. Rachel Carson, actually. I mean, I was only thinking about something this morning about environment, about how nature writing has gained such traction. I've never read her. Oh, you should read Silent Spring, yeah. Uh, this, um, uh, her nature writing's got such traction, you know, over the past decade. And it's obviously partly because of our anxiety about the destruction of nature, the wilderness, our fault, anxiety and nature writing and solace and our escape to the wilderness which is all wonderful compared with the ghastliness of the civilization that's destroying the wilderness uh someone recently called it well we've got to is the misanthropocene uh which Mm. is really the premise of a lot of nature writing now as i've said you know everything would be just so great if there weren't any people yeah but uh rachel castle was just such a pioneer in the field of proper writing about this is what we're doing and this is what's going to happen if we carry on doing it i mean pioneer is the word i think it i was turned off of reading her because i had a geography teacher in high school who raved about silent spring and i couldn't stand him yeah that would put you off well he's um 
not with us anymore, your geography teacher. And so maybe have a look at Rachel Carson. I think I think she's really interesting. There seems to be a resurgence of nature writing currently. I- yeah, that's what I said. It's got traction over the past 10 years as a result of our anxiety. Uh, of course, the wilderness fosters serenity and the stuff I was talking about earlier. And one does think about different things when one's unshackled from civilization. But the place we've got to with nature writing at the moment is is a bit of a weak low. I mean, a bit of a cul-de-sac. Um, mm. And we need to get ourselves out of it um, rather than just hemming what we're losing. Yeah, because in, in the end, you know, you, there's nobody there to tell the story of these places. Like if you if you throw the the teller out with everything else, yeah, as, as a scourge to humanity, you know, yeah, it's, it's not. It goes beyond learning the lessons to to something much uh, less healthy. I think. So to to come full circle, then I, I wanted to quote uh, something you said in the preface to Evia. You, you wrote that you could I could barely recognize the young woman who was me. Now, looking back from a mature and more jaded vantage point, I envy her those months of indolence and freedom when she simply leapt aboard whatever bus turned up. Uh, in what way more jaded, and, and how has your view of the world changed over the course of your career from then until now? Well, don't you think that youthful idealism always gives way to um, middle-aged um, malaise when you just know more about the horrors of the world, and it's harder to have hope? When you've read enough news stories, um, it's hard to have hope. Uh, let's just talk about people now rather than nature. And the polarity, even since I was a child, the polarity between rich and poor, getting worse in almost every country of the world, notably in my own. Appalling state mm. of affairs. And I think that elegiac melancholy of middle age comes to everybody. So that's really what I was talking about when I wrote that. Whereas every young woman thinks she can change the world, don't they? We ought to anyway. Um, whereas it looks a bit different from six when I'm, I'm 60 now, as I've said, and um, I, I don't know how one could ever hold on to that youthful idealism. Well, you sort of can't really because it's the cost of living, isn't it? The, cost, the price one pays for a living is an awareness of the horrors of it. And the inequalities, I mean, I, I'm talking about sort of social and economic just then, but even um, the inequalities of nature, and how we have to deal with them. You know, I have quite a lot to do with um, the third sector. Um, yes, yeah, that's something I've I've come to realise much more uh, vividly recently as well. I didn't appreciate that when I was younger. They're just that, you know, some people are just born with, with less possibilities in life. And it, there's no matter how much you want something, there's nothing much you can do about it. So I certainly, yeah, I'd see how there's more of a cynicism. I mean, I'm 49 now and... It certainly feels like oh, I've seen all this before, but but there's something inherently optimistic about travel itself. You know, like you have to sort of push through the boredom and hardships and and want to to put yourself out there. And I didn't get a sense of uh, a jaded person when I read uh, Mud and Stars, or come away with the feeling that you know that that you had reached this kind of jaded middle age. It, it seemed I, it seemed to me I saw kind of a wiser, more experienced traveler. Uh, with a curiosity for finding things out, is still willing to go out there. Well, that's very nice of you to say that. Uh, I suppose jaded. I was um, trying to encapsulate all we've said in one word, but I'm glad that mm. you. I'm glad that you felt so. There was uh, optimism still there. So, writers, a writer's duty to have hope. Yeah, well, I think so. Yeah. Otherwise, why would you go? Why would you drag yourself to your desk every day? That's it. 
I mean, apart from <laughs> apart from paying the bills and that sort paying of thing. Paying the bills, that's a bit of a big one, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So what's what's next for you? Like, so I thought I think I saw on Twitter pre-pandemic you were working on something about the, the was it the Bronx or Brooklyn, one of the bees. You're quite right. Yeah, yeah. I was in the Bronx actually when this all came down, and um, had to come back in a hurry. I absolutely loved it there, and I I was going to write a book about the Bronx. I very much wanted to, and that I'm afraid has fallen foul of the appropriation voice appropriation. No, um, Jesus, yeah. yeah, I know, I know, I know. Um, which is a pity because I interviewed a lot of people and a lot of them said at the end of the interview, my God, someone's come to speak to us. The net result of all of that is their voices are not being heard. So what interested you about the Bronx? Uh, it was a place the size of Paris, Ryan, um, where no one's ever been. Even my friends in Manhattan have never been. Hmm. Uh, for my generation, it got sort of speared with bonfire of the vanities of, uh, oh, danger, mm. danger, 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 don't get out of the car. And it's very beautiful. Got this amazing coastline, the end of Long Island Sound, and it's very green and incredible history. Uh, notably, the well, uh, to my mind, of no- notable interest was Jewish immigrants from the Lower East Side in the twenties. There's a writer I massively admire, Kate Simon, who mem- memorialised that period. And shifting, shifting, and all them more moving north. They moved from the Lower East Side in Manhattan and moved north and through the Bronx. They carried on moving. And so the Bronx continually replenished itself. And now, to my mind, has an incredibly interesting, um, diverse population. Um, almost 50% people of colour. Um, really interesting mix of um, Latinos. I was living in a Latino area. Um, anyway, just the tons of things about it that were interesting. But that will all spill over and see the light of day somehow or other. Yeah. Yeah, I think the, the climate will change and, and those stories can be brought back up again. So so where next for you then in, in terms of travel? Uh, well, like everybody else, I'm not going anywhere at the moment, of course. And I'm not sure. I was thinking about Uruguay. I've always thought I might go back mm. to South America. Uh, I've always thought that. I'd go back to South America at some time uh, for a whole book. Um, so I might I might head off there when I can. Um yeah, I've got I've got various ideas. So the pandemic for me, I mean, I'm very fortunate. You know, I've had a great time personally. Um, plenty of things to write about, actually, and um, slightly sort of pivoted at doing my radio work and um, thinking about things and actually reading a lot more. Um, so a lot of projects that haven't really taken root of the book variety. And it's been quite good for me doing, I think, short distance um, stuff for a while. Hmm. So the answer to your question really is I don't know. Oh, the world's a wide open place, and I look forward to seeing where you go next. Thank you very much. Really nice to chat to you. No, thank you very much for making the time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Personal Landscapes. If you like the podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes and subscribe through your favorite app. You can find links to today's podcast and more conversations on Books About Place at ryanvernorth.com. You'll also find a donate button if you'd like to contribute to the costs of the show. All donations are greatly appreciated.